This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hello and welcome to the Times Red Box podcast. You've shoved a stick up your nose, you've wiped it delicately on your Matt Chorley lateral flow test, you've waited 30 minutes and it's come back negative. No Matt Chorley, it's me Luke Jones, all this week he'll be back on Monday. Today in the podcast, in the absence of a government plan, we solve the social care crisis. But first, our columnists, John Kampfner and Alice Thompson. improve on either, on either of you on that go on alice <laughs> oh i like test is best actually although i don't think it's best it's a bit of a problem because um i think that i would much prefer everyone to be getting vaccines as we all would and we know that, that works i'm slightly dubious about this yes testing scheme john uh, uh i'm struggling i'm struggling um, you're struggling it, we are uh yeah uh, something like we'll get there in the end um but uh no i mean it's oh, god uh, right, give me give me to the end of the slot. We'll I'll come do, back to you. We'll something. come back to yeah, you. Exactly. Um, Alice, why do you why do you seem worried by this? What why are you not a fan? Well, we had problems with track and trace. In fact, we've had problems the whole way through this virus for the last year with everything that has been tried. Um, and the vaccination program really has been the most effective so far, and extraordinary in bringing down figures and in also in people just complying with it. And that has been the problem with track and trace, and I think will be the problem with test and trace is that people will find it difficult to comply. Some of them won't probably be particularly good at actually doing the tests. And we don't know really how safe the tests are and whether they're actually we're going to get false positive, false negatives um, enough. And I know that um, I uh, know people at Cambridge University and they have um, been doing it. They did it all last term. And what happened actually is a lot of the students then had to keep isolating and self-isolating. And um, it caused absolute chaos in the end. Really, Because of false negatives. Well, no, just because they kept having to do it. And then, you you know, you have absolutely no symptoms. You don't think you've got it. And then, you know, they didn't know if they were false negatives um, yeah. and they didn't know if they had false positives. And then you just found that you were opening and closing the whole time. So that's my only worry. My worry with schools that whole years could have to go home endlessly because of this testing. 
Um, I just think it's so much more important to put everything into the vaccination program so that the more people we can vaccinate, the better. And that's you know, it's much better to go with what you really know works, I mm. feel. And, and John, on that point about schools with this mass testing, it's not just kids in schools and, and teachers, but it's also parents and anyone in the support bubbles of those families as well. Yeah, I think the big problem in all of this is that with what the vaccination, the, the very successful, and as Alice says, the first time this government and the authorities have got anything right in 10 or 11 months. And we just should always remember that Britain has the highest per capita death rate in the whole world, um, which is just a, a horror. And the vaccination progress is remarkable, being so different to everything else that came before. And yeah, I mean, the testing, I've how many times have I tested myself? Three or four times over that time. Each time came out negative. Mm. But, you know, I'm not a doctor. I'm not a nurse. I have no idea if I did it the right way. Other countries had testing procedures where you had to go to places and trained people would apply the swabs in the right way. And I think psychologically, with the success of the vaccinations, with this absolute gravitational pull that people feel with the spring towards going out and finally sort of we're in the, 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 the last throes of this, people think, I think it's going to be incredibly difficult to persuade people to do them. And then even more so, if you ended up testing positive, what would you do with it? Would you self-isolate again, having basically you know, locked yourself in or almost completely in for the best part of a year. It's going to be incredibly but difficult. Alice, could it not even go too far the other way? And because there's lots of worry from Stephen Reich on Times Radio Breakfast this morning, where he the go in the are you ready, get testing go uh, was troubling him because you don't want people to necessarily flock to these tests and then see um, a, a negative test as a great, you can go out and uh, hug grandma Party. and lick all your friends. <laughs> That's the problem, isn't it? That's why the um, vaccination programme is a better way of doing it, because although we don't know that whether or not you can then pass it on if you've had the vaccine exactly, we know that there's less transmission with the vaccine. And we also know that it is, you know, it's been highly effective. And so I think that's that's where we need to put as you know, all our efforts, all our attempts, everything that we can do, we should be doing there. There are ways, I think the hospitals, it's incredibly useful to have the testing the whole time and also they are just more likely to be able to do it effectively and proficiently. It does worry me that teenagers doing it themselves are not going to be particularly efficient at it, particularly if they think they're going to get um, a positive result and then have to isolate from their friends for weeks. Hmm. I mean, I think one of the things is that if, when, when the, um, we do complete this groups one to nine by some point shortly after Easter, certainly by the end of April, then as NHS figures um, keep on showing us, that's 99%, all the categories that account for 99% of COVID deaths um, have been accounted for, quote unquote. And that make, will make it incredibly difficult, I think, for all forms of enforcement. And then that will be interesting to see what then happens with the transmissibility of the disease after mm -hmm. that. And Alice, what do you make of the of the way in which the government has managed optimism? Because you keep reading in the papers and I guess in conversations with friends as well, people are feeling more and more hopeful. But the government has managed to rein itself in, hasn't it? And it's sticking to targets which, all, by all reports, it seems like they're going to smash in terms of the, the vaccine rollout. I think they have on that. I did find that when we got another edict about Easter and oh you may be able to go on self-catering holidays I just yeah. thought no please we did that with Christmas we don't just don't get people's hopes up carry on 
you know, be consistent. I think the schools are really important. I feel that universities are equally important and I think they've yeah. been totally forgotten in all this. And I, it makes me really angry that all we talk about is free speech at universities when in fact these people aren't even on campuses or in colleges. So they're not being, you know, there's no problem about free speech at the moment at all. They're not getting enough education. So I, that it's those people that worry me. I don't personally really care as much about holidays yet. I just want to get the country going again. Mm. And I think... Sometimes when Boris Johnson says too much or Downing Street hints too much at, at issues that you, you just wonder what they really want when they say that, you know, get families together for Easter. I'm just not sure we need to have that messaging again. I think we should be much, much mm. more rigorous about the hints and the ideas we are fed and, about what should happen next, really. And, and you mentioned uh, students there, Alice. That's the, um, that's the topic of your column today. Students are feeling ripped off uh, and abandoned. And, and tell us about your, ne- your nephew at, at, at Durham, because you sort of lay out his situation and it does, it paints a kind of bleak picture for university students at the moment. I think they have. I know quite a lot of students at the moment, who, who, a few of who've gone back. And it's very, very difficult if you go back because you have to be self-isolating in your room and you can go and collect your meal and have it at your desk or sitting on your bed and a lot of these are first year students he's not he's um in his final year and he just invited had a couple of friends over for a drink in their house and he hadn't seen anyone since christmas over really for sort of two months it was just Mm. been two of them in the house and i think that's what's so hard for them is they're being really rigorously monitored and everyone should by the rules but the, the some of the fines that they're getting and bristol i know they've been fined you know really large amounts a lot of the students um for just meeting up in corridors together in groups and you think these are 18 to 21 year olds who are quite vulnerable a lot of them have huge mental health issues now so yeah. they've got the highest rate of mental health issues in the country and they also have now the lowest rate of employability so they're in a really difficult situation just when you should actually be having fun and enjoying yourself and just beginning to get away from your family you're stuck with your family all over again um, or you're stuck in a sort of tiny little but it's not even a bed sit really for most of them it's a tiny little room just sitting on your bed all day looking at a screen yeah I totally agree and it's a really um, uh, good column that, that you wrote today Alice and I find it incomprehensible how I mean universities have become companies uh, mm. in which revenue is the most important thing and the the KPIs, the performance indicators of vice chancellors, is basically about how much money they can bring in, and to spend or to be required to spend nine thousand two hundred and fifty on on uh, tuition fees, uh, and to be getting no one to one. Even I mean, I know uh, students who are getting absolutely even on Zoom, no one to one at all. They, as you say, they then have the um, devil or deep blue sea choice about living on their own, locked in their rooms effectively or with one other person or to stay with their parents, in which case, why on earth are they being required to pay hmm. for their living accommodation? They are just being completely ripped off. Of course, universities are losing other forms of revenue streams, but their one, their, their one and only uh, top priority should be the well-being of students and staff. And so what see... should be done then, do you think? I think well, it's I, quite they're... easy, actually, to know, to be honest. I think that there's a, we've got a huge requirement now for children to be taught. And I think that actually they could help with that. They could help with the tutoring. They could help in the summer holidays. There's so much they could do. But in return, they then need a lot of help. So in the way that we're talking about children needing catch-up, 
they need catch up and they need, you know, I think you could cut down um, their tuition fees for the year just as a token to show that they care. I think it's extraordinary they're being forced to pay rent, many of them. You know, say 5,000 quid for a year's rent when you're not actually going to be there most of the time. And I think they should be encouraged to think about, you know, help with jobs at the end of it because they're going to find it much more difficult to get jobs at the end of it. So there's quite a lot you could do for students. But at the moment, absolutely nothing's been done. The only thing that Gavin Williamson, the Education Secretary, has said is he's worried about free speech. That is literally all he's been talking about with the students. Well, nobody's when... talking to each other, let alone doing it in a free way. Yeah. 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 John, is, is Alice right? Is, is, that, is, that, is there actually a simple solution to this in terms of knocking money off fees and, and, and rent and the like? Yeah, but I also think the... It's a, a longer term. Absolutely, that is the right thing. And, and immediate is what matters. But I do think we need to look again at the priorities of our universities. And time and again, students, even before COVID, you do wonder uh, what on earth they are getting for this uh, extraordinary amount of debt that they're being forced to accrue. Often the amount of FaceTime teaching they've been getting has been poor. Hmm. And... It's, ve it's very much a case in this country that there's a, a two-tier of society, unlike other countries that do prioritise vocational and other forms of in-work training, that sort of you have to have gone to university to be able to make it in life. And I think that puts an inordinate amount of pressure on young people to do that. And, to, and particularly after the pandemic, there are not going to be the jobs out there that are going to... So you're, they're going to have a double whammy of an impossibly poor uh, tertiary education followed by an incredibly difficult jobs market. Yeah. Well, you listening, you can get involved as well. 8722 to text us. Don't mess with the word time. Someone has just uh, texted in to say, Hooray for Alice. Students have been criminalised, demonised, threatened and unchampioned. The universities have taken on a police role. Were they asked to? Um, also on Twitter as well, at Times Radio. Uh, both of you, I want to pick your brain on this um, piece in The Guardian yesterday, a piece by uh, Tom Cabasi, who uh, was one of the architects of, of Keir Starmer's uh, leadership campaign, um, saying if, if Keir Starmer were to depart as leader tomorrow, he would not leave a trace of a meaningful political project in his wake. Is that right, Alice? Um, I thought this was a fascinating article, actually, because it's someone who's a real insider who knows um, what he's doing and really wanted it to work. And I think that is the problem with Keir Starmer. Is I think everyone wanted him to work. They wanted an effective opposition. And it's extraordinarily, he hasn't really opposed. I mean, he hasn't, there's so much that's gone wrong in the last year. And he hasn't stood up for various groups or like care homes would have been an obvious one, as well as students, as well as education. He doesn't really get into it. It's almost as if he's more involved in the minutiae, as the article says, of his party and worrying about his party and taking on the left. When in fact, what we want him to do is see the broader picture, and you know he can always you know you can compliment the government when they get something right like vaccination programs. Mm. But there is so much he needs to hold them to account for, and also look forward and give an alternative so that people feel there is an, you know, an opposition to this government. And uh, John uh, Tom says in the piece that Kissam's leadership needs an urgent course correction. Um, is he right? And also, if he is, did you think that that is actually likely to happen? It was interesting when that piece was released by The Guardian yesterday, there was a barrage of criticism of it and some quite ad hominem. And I don't know the, the author personally. And so therefore, I was a little bit sceptical when I read it. And actually, I reread it again this morning. And actually, it is a good piece and it does make some important points. And, and on this slot, uh, on more than once before uh, with Matt and with Alice, I've 
uh, regaled against what Starmer is doing. He's fighting. He's he's committing the absolute cardinal sin of politics, which is to fight the last election. The last election is gone by 2024, assuming it's then. The ground will have shifted. And this absurd attempt by Starmer to plonk himself on Johnson's territory, to put two flags, two union flags behind him and to say, actually, Brexit wasn't such a terrible thing, is just the wrong way to go. Nobody is going to buy that. Labour was not the party of Brexit, mercifully, in my view. He's got this idea as uh, because he is he's my local MP in in Camden, in, in North London. He's very much part of the liberal elite, quote unquote, um, human rights lawyer and then uh, director of public prosecutions. He's doing everything he can to try to pretend that he's something else. Mm. And that is just the wrong way to go about it. Yes, there are some incredibly important issues that the last election did throw up. But those to me are not around, are less around identity and these superficial issues. They're around making this country work better. And that's what he's got to be going on about. And he's just got to be much more fearless and much more forthright. And he's he, it's that, that's just that classic Labour mistake of always running scared. And John, you say we haven't got an, uh, another election until 2024. But of course, Alice, we've got the local elections in May, uh, the Hollywood elections also uh, in the spring as well. Um, do you think results from either of those might actually uh, affect some kind of change in the Labour leadership in England? I, you hope so, because I think the government actually is running campaigns for those elections. I think there's quite a lot of culture war now going on, which I think directly feeds into that. The government is trying to get onto the right foot at the moment, not just on vaccination. And it sees the culture wars as a way to do that, which I disagree with. But they are actually going for it. And you don't feel that Labour have really focused on the elections in the same way. And I think Keir Starmer really needs to look at it and see it as his first test. And he could easily fail this. I don't think they'll get rid of him. I don't think I, that, you know, that he's on the way out. But I think he is going to have to have a rethink. Otherwise, he's going to have a really difficult long summer. Can I tell you what happened in my local Sainsbury's yesterday? <laughs> so yes, I was, definitely. So I read this piece yesterday after the show, so sort of like mid-afternoon, and then I uh, went off to go get some, um, let's say, supplies, wine. And I was queuing in the Sainsbury's, and then standing next to me in the queue was Keir Starmer, and he was reading this piece... And he was there, really? scrolling through this piece. And I sort of recognised... So which is your Sainsbury's, Luke? Which is it? Tufnell Park, John, thanks for asking. Tufnell Park. Yeah. <laughs> and um, and anyway, what was his reaction? Well, I could, well, he had a mask on, didn't he? So he was in the shop. So I was desperately trying to look across next to me to see if he was shaking his head or anything, but I couldn't, I couldn't discern any reaction. But he was, yeah, he was... And he was scrolling through it quite quickly as well. I don't know if he's a speed reader or if he was just having a quick skim. But, um, yeah, <laughs> do with that what you will. <laughs> I now feel quite sorry for him. Why? Well, I think it's always hard. I hate the idea of people having to look at their own bad reviews, effectively, isn't it? That it's always that ghastliness. Although uh, people like John Major always did spend far too much time looking at their reviews about themselves and their stories about themselves. And in the end, you've just got to govern or you've just got to oppose that you can't take too much notice either of focus groups or newspapers <laughs> or TV or radio. I will tell you a quick story Thanks. about a guy, and I won't tell you who he is, but I was um, at an event and handing in my coat and he had just had a banner headline across the whole top of the, this was several years ago, across the whole top of the Daily Mail, um, which said, is this the worst man in Britain? Question <laughs> mark. Um, and I sort of, 
put my arm around this guy who I didn't particularly sort of like, but I was trying to be friendly <laughs> and said, God, I'm amazed that you're here. I hope you're all right. And, you know, God, what an awful way to start the day. And to which he responded, what are you talking about, mate? That's the best thing that's ever happened to me. That's effing brilliant. Um, so that I think that separates the um, the Teflon people from the non-Teflon people. I certainly, if I had anything approximating to that, uh, sort of go into pieces. But uh, maybe that's why I didn't go into politics. John Kampfner and Alice Thompson. Next, we've assembled the biggest social care brains to solve the crisis. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. We've already had the government plans for yet another reorganisation of the NHS, or, as Paul Johnson from the Institute for Fiscal Studies told us on Monday, yet another disorganisation... Thank you, Paul. But cast your mind back to the heady pre-COVID days of July 2019. Boris Johnson stood on the steps of Downing Street for the first time as Prime Minister and had a very clear message on social care. My job is to protect you or your parents or grandparents from the fear of having to sell your home to pay for the costs of care. And so I am announcing now on the steps of Downing Street that we will fix the crisis in social care once and for all with a clear plan we have prepared. 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 It's a clear plan and he's got it prepared. A clear plan we have prepared. But 18 months, an election and a global health emergency later, that clear plan remains nowhere to be seen. 
Last week, Health Secretary Matt Hancock announced sweeping reforms to the NHS in England. The White Paper is built on more than two years of work with the NHS, local councils and the public. At its heart, this White Paper enables greater integration, reduces bureaucracy and supports the way that the NHS and social care work when they work at their best together. But social care has been pushed once again to the back of the queue. As we continue to tackle this pandemic, we will also bring forward changes in social care, public health and mental health services. We're committed to the reform of adult social care and we will bring forward proposals this year. So they are committed to the reform still, but later this year. It's not the first time in recent memory that social care was kept separate from the NHS. Theresa May was dealt serious damage from confusion over policy dumped the dumped dubbed, I can't say that word, dubbed the dementia tax by the opposition. So if the government is not quite ready to tackle social care, we thought we'd give it a go. Live this morning, experts from this very field on uh, what do they do uh, when they are committed to reform, not later in this year, but what we should do right now. Natasha Curry is the Deputy Director of Policy at the Nuffield Trust. Ruth Isden is Health uh, Influencing Programme Director at Age UK. Harry Quilter-Pinner is the Director of Research and Engagement at the Institute for Public Policy Research. And Warwick Lightfoot is the Policy Exchange Head of Economics. Uh, Natasha Curry. Nuffield Trust, I will start with you. Good morning. Morning. Could you, could you lay out for us, first of all, um, when we keep hearing the phrase uh, social care crisis and, and the need for reform, uh, why there is that need? What is the problem at the moment and how is it manifesting? Well, we have um, a system in social care that is broken, essentially. It's unfair, it's unsustainable, it's highly confusing and complex for people to navigate. And it's been neglected over the last 20 years. You know, we've seen um, a succession of different reviews and commissions, uh, proposals for reform, yet nothing has actually happened. Um, and there are several things going on here. So there's what we're seeing in the population is a growing need, and that's partly from our ageing population. We're living longer, but we're living longer with multiple conditions and higher needs. And we're also seeing a growth in need amongst um, working age adults. So people with disabilities, for example, living later into life, which is a good news story, but obviously has implications for the, the level of care. So we're seeing a rise in the need in the population. But what we're seeing is a drop in the funding an investment that's being put in to the system to support them. So we have this gap between need and an, in, an investment. So we have we have a, a broken system. Um, so along alongside people not being able to access care because of the funding cuts, we've also got a highly inconsistent system. So it depends where you live as to what you might be able to to access. Um, we also have problems in the workforce. You know, we've, we've got vacancies above 100,000 um, care workers. And we're, we're seeing organisations which provide care really struggling to be able to provide high-quality care on the, the, the fees that they're paid. So there's a whole range of, of different problems here that need urgent um, attention, um, but that have been, this issue's been pushed into the long grass consistently for the last 20 years. So is it fair to say, I mean, I've said numerous times in the introduction, in fact, someone on, on text has just taken issue with me on this, on saying this, that the government as it stands does not have a plan for social care is that fair to say well it's 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 hard to know isn't it because i mean we've been promised the plan you you played the clip boris johnson implied there that he had a clear plan that they had prepared yet 18 months in we we still haven't seen 
mm. any plan. Um, <clears throat> I mean, we've been drip fed a few sort of, um, you know, hints of what might be going on. But I think w- one of my, my concerns is um, when the government does mention this, that they talk um, solely about older people and catastrophic costs of care. They don't talk yes. about the wider problems that I've just laid out. So, so it's difficult to know where the thinking is uh, in the government at the moment. So what would you like to see then to address not only what you just mentioned there, but also the, the financial funding gap as well? Well, I think what, what we really need to see is um, a plan for creating a system that ensures fair and consistent access to care for people when they need it, regardless of where they live or their age or what needs they have, to enable them to live fulfilling lives independently. And, and to achieve that, I think we need the government to set out a vision for, for what that, that service might look like. And then a plan to get there. And the plan to get there involves funding. That's really important. We need to reform the funding system. But we also need to think about how people access services, how they become eligible for, for services, how we're going to support the workforce, how we're going to support um, the, the people who provide care, so the organisations that run care homes and home care, etc., and how we support unpaid carers as well. There's a, I think we need a, a, a comprehensive plan that, that takes us to a place where we achieve a stable, high-quality and sustainable system that gives people who use care and provide care the, the certainty that they need. And also, we, we keep hearing from, from politicians of all shades that social care and the NHS need to work a lot more closely together and that reorganisation of the NHS should necessarily come hand in glove with, with the reorganisation of how social care works as well. Is that right? Yeah, and I think I think what we've seen over the last year with COVID, it's really highlighted how interdependent the NHS and social care are. I mean, it's not what we know, but I think we've really it's really clear now. Um, so yes, people don't distinguish between their healthcare and their their social care needs. You know, it's really important that the services run um, hand in glove, as you say, uh, with each other. But I think the problem we have is we have two very separate systems and we're trying to bring a system in the NHS that's relatively well funded um, and highly organised together with a, an underfunded and highly fragmented and complex system. And I think that's deeply flawed. And just finally with you, Natasha, I wonder, have you seen anything in various um proposals or reviews or commissions that you think actually that is either that's it or that's close to what would be the the thing we should do well there's no shortage of ideas out there um there have been multiple proposals for things over the years i think i think there's a lot we can do in learning from abroad we've been looking at systems in germany and japan which kind of um, set out an idea of how the system could work so there's no shortage of ideas what we need now is some leadership to say what would work in our context what do we need what do people want and how do we get there and uh, as someone points out paul on the text remember that the name of the department that matt hancock is in charge of is now called uh, the department for health and social care as well so um, there should be that joined up thinking um because it all comes under one department necessarily thanks very much for your time that's natasha curry she is uh, deputy director of policy at the nuffield trust now let's go live to ruth isden who is the uh, who is health influencing program director at age uk morning morning um First of all, could you lay out for us in terms of how the problems with social care at the moment are manifesting themselves from your viewpoint? So really, I mean, picking up from where Natasha left off, I think what we see is a picture whereby, first and foremost, we know that many older people are offered too little care and too late on. Um, Mm. So rationing through this needs test system that we have means that people have to get to a really pretty high level of need before there there is really anything on offer to them. And then once something is on offer to them, 
um, because they fall within the needs test and critically the means test as well. So a lot of people are excluded on the basis of, of how much money they have. Um, what's on offer is then often quite inadequate to meet their needs. So we have this, this really high number, about 1.5 million older people who live with some level of unmet need. And most of them are getting some help from somewhere, either through formal care services or through from family and friends. But it's just not enough. So, so they're living in a way that really is compromising their health and independence. And even then, for those people who fall outside of the means test, um, uh, what they, they then also struggle to, to access care because it can be really very unaffordable or, or hard to source. So we have, this, we have this hideous picture, really, where people don't get what they need. They don't get it when they need it. Even if they can pay for it for themselves, it's very difficult to get hold of. And yeah. as a result, we just rely far too heavily and ask far too much of family carers. And what has the trend been in this over the past few years? Has it has it always been this case? Has it been getting worse? Has it been getting slightly better? Oh, I think it's fair to say it's been getting a lot worse. So, I mean, I we wouldn't paint a rosy picture of the care system at any point. I think it's it's fair to say it's always been the Cinderella service in this in this um, in, the, yeah. in the health and social care picture, but. Over the last, uh, really the last 10 or 12 years, we've seen a significant amount of funding come out of the system. So we know that although in cash terms, funding is broadly where it was about 10 years ago now, maybe a bit higher. Over that period of time, we've seen a tremendous number of people come into the system. Uh, as Natasha said, we've got an aging population. We've got growing levels of need. People are living longer. Yeah. They're living longer with more complex conditions um, like dementia or multiple conditions. So actually, the funding that has been coming in really, really hasn't been keeping pace with, with what the needs of the population are in any way, shape or form. And that has meant that we have increased rationing by just bringing that needs threshold, that point yeah. at which you can actually access something. The system has just been getting higher and higher and higher all over that time. So what would you like to see in policy terms? I mean, it's clear that you want sort of... Um, people's eligibility it to be wider so more people are helped by this and then if when they are on the system they get more from it um but i wonder if, if you have any preferred method of funding this or any sort of policy ideas that you've seen for how better to achieve this efficiently well i think a lot of ways that you can you can address the funding issue i mean but i think the most important thing is it does need to be comprehensive um, it does need to be pretty universal and it needs to make sure that we share the risk. And so there's, there's lots of ways you can do that. So we've talked in, over the past about things like free personal care or a cap system or a kind of a universal insurance model. All of those things go some way towards um, some way towards to delivering on that. Yeah. I mean, some are better than others. Um, and obviously, as with all of them, the devil is in the detail of what is actually on offer um, and actually how much is on offer to any individual and I think that's probably more important mm. than the specific funding model that you use it comes back as you say to that question of broadening eligibility to bring as many people into the system as possible regardless of how you might kind of manage payment after yeah. that but that's really only half the battle I'm afraid I mean so addressing you know making care more affordable for people is, is only half the battle the other part is as you know as we've talked about it's just really well understood that the there will be people who cannot afford to contribute to the cost of their own care whether that we do that across the life course through an insurance model or um, later on in life and the fact that we underfund the state system so badly has a lot of knock-on consequences it makes the market very dysfunctional it means we can't invest in the workforce yeah it delivers care black spots so actually all of 
those two things need to come together. So in addition to looking at the type of funding system you create, mm. you've also got to look at actually how secure and sustainable a system is it into the future? And will it really deliver that, that investment across the board that's urgently needed? And some of those models sort of move the deck chairs on who's mm. paying what, which is welcome to a degree, but it doesn't necessarily bring more money into the system overall. Past Imperfect with Rachel Sylvester and Alice Thompson, a weekly series of in-depth interviews with high-profile figures examining how overcoming the challenges of their early lives shaped the people they've become. This week, Bake Off winner, TV chef and author Nadia Hussain reveals the violent racial abuse she suffered as a British Bangladeshi in 1980s Luton, her struggles with mental health and how baking has changed her life. Racism and that kind of unconscious bias exists in every industry. And so now that I'm in them, I see the problem with them is that there is nobody else. Past Imperfect with Rachel Sylvester and Alice Thompson. Nadia Hussein, in her own words. Now available as a podcast. Listen on the Times Radio app or wherever you get your podcasts. Across the UK, on DAB Digital Radio, on the free Times Radio app and on your smart speaker. This is Times Radio. Where it's 20 past 11, we're continuing our conversation about social care. The government, of course, has brought forward their white paper about the reorganisation of the NHS in England. But what about social care? Matt Hancock said they are still committed to reform, but that we'll be hearing about it later on this year. Of course, Boris Johnson did say he had a plan for social care uh, way back when he became Prime Minister in July 2019. So what could they do? What are the best fixes uh, to solving this crisis? In a moment, we'll hear from uh, the head of economics at the Policy Exchange. Live right now, though, is Harry Quilterpinner. He's director of research and engagement at the Institute for Public Policy Research. Hi, Harry. Morning. So um, get off the fence for us. Uh, you're in charge of social care reform. What are you going to do? Well, I think we have to start by defining really clearly what we think the problem we're trying to fix is. Um, and Boris Johnson has so far uh, mainly defined it around the, the risk of having to sell your home. Um, I, th I think the big challenge, the big injustice that we have to face um, is that, you know, in England, if you get cancer, the NHS will pay for your care. It, you know, it might be an emotionally stressful time. It probably will be, but it shouldn't be financially stressful. Um, by contrast, if you get dementia or you just become frail as you, as you become older, you have to pay for that care yourself. And it's that division between the NHS and social care that's at the heart of, of, of the injustice we're trying to fix. You know, we collectivise risk for the NHS, but we individualise it for social care. So are you, saying, the, that, that you, so are you saying that then the social care system should have that joined up um, collective risk like the NHS? Or are you saying that it should just wholly become part of the NHS social care? I don't think there's I don't think we should be having a conversation about you know, nationalising providers of social care. It's a very fragmented, complex system. Um, but I do think what we should be saying is we should be collectivising the risk. And what that means is, as you uh, alluded to, is making, uh, at the very least, the care element of social care, you know, helping people get up in the morning, making sure they get their medication, making sure they're clean and they get dressed and they, they're eating. That should be uh, provided free at the point of need uh, in exactly the same way that the NHS is. There is no rational reason for the division between someone who's got cancer or someone who's got dementia and the care they should get. So, so our proposal at IPPR um, is, is for essentially, as a starting point, the introduction of free personal care 
to make care free at the point of need, just like the NHS uh, provides for many other people. But of course, many people will be wondering, especially as we emerge from a very expensive pandemic, how we pay for this. Yes, I mean, free personal care itself has been costed at about £5 billion per year in addition. Um, we've also said at IPPR that you need to uh, put a bit more than that in to make sure that all of our carers um, are paid a living wage and that also that we're keeping up with the growing demand that, that Natasha and Ruthie have just discussed. So we're talking about you know £9 billion a year is what we've costed it at. So clearly that's not cheap, hmm. but the point that we would make is that um, it's a small price to pay, really, for for making sure that people are cared for properly um, in their time of need. And we've seen what happens when it goes wrong during this pandemic. We've seen the, the real cost of a decade, more than a decade, of underfunding and of neglect. And what that looks like is, is many, many people going without the care they need. And in the case of COVID-19, many people... Um, you know, dying in care homes because we haven't properly resourced the system. So I think our argument is that uh, £9 billion of investment is is a small price to pay for the benefits that we will get uh, from that collectively, uh, particularly those people, vulnerable older people who need care uh, uh, from from the social care system. But as we've seen in the past, well, Theresa May's dementia tax we mentioned a little bit earlier on, there's not much appetite necessarily to pay for this, is there? I'm not sure. I, I, I think I think we'd like to challenge that. We did some polling um, with uh, um, with Policy Exchange actually with Warwick on the on the line, and you know there's a, there is a consistent recognition uh, amongst the public that the social care has been underfunded. That that recognition is both Conservative and Labour voters. Um, there is also a willingness in in, in the polling that we've done uh, that that says people are willing to put uh, to pay more in taxation if they feel that they're going to get something much yeah. better out. Um, and I think the offer of, uh, you know, social care, free at the point of need, um, would would uh, allow the government to say, we are going to have to put up some taxes to fund this properly. Um, and I do think as we as we emerge from, from COVID, and obviously we wouldn't want to be putting up taxes in this moment right now, because we're in a, we need to, to, to recover the economy. But as we emerge, I think there would be support for higher taxation for better public services. And that's got to be one of the lessons from COVID-19 is that we need, if we want resilient public services, we need to fund them properly. Well, stay with us, Harry. As you mentioned, we've uh, also got Warwick Lightfoot, who is Head of Economics at the Policy Exchange. Hi, Warwick. Hi, morning. I wonder how much of of what Harry had to say there you agree with. Uh, First of all, in in the sort of main thrust of of the reform needed in social care being... uh, collectivising the, what was the word, collectivising, making more collective the risk? Oh, absolutely. I mean, Harry and I both appeared before the House of Lords Economic Affairs uh, Committee um, in giving evidence to them, and there was barely a cigarette paper of difference between the evidence the policy exchange gave and the IPPR. And we start from the basis that the complex, um, expensive, long-term chronic social care cannot be funded by individuals Mm. and it cannot be funded by a private insurance market. That's something that collectively we have to fund ourselves. Now, oddly, if I have cancer or a a trivial matter, such as a ganglion cyst on the palm of my hand, that's all done free at the point of um, delivery by the National Health Service. If talking to you right now, I have a colossal stroke 
and need a lot of personal assistance, I will be in the hands of my own resources until they're exhausted and I'm picked up effectively through the Social Security budget. Yeah. Now, I would like to actually modify the conversation we've had because these problems are not new. The underfunding of social services, putting resources into the acute sector of the National Health Service, the neglect of community medicine, it's not just social services, but it's the district health services and the community-based services dealing with people with disability and chronic conditions in the community that have been neglected. And, of course, the neglect of social care goes right back to the foundations of the National Health Service in 1948 and the passing of the National Assistance Act in 1948. Mm. I would also say, and I was actually in government at the Treasury when this was done, the implementation of the Griffiths Report and care into the community effectively placed a cap on local authority social services support for individuals. And then the policy guidance about eligibility criteria were tightened further in the 1990s and in the 2000s. So there's nothing new on squeezing social care and eligibility yes. for it. So this has been a long-standing issue, and there are two dimensions. One is that if you need the care, it has the possibility of bankrupting you. And the second is that the service that's provided is underfunded, and the quality of it is very, very mixed and very often poor. And Warwick, but, but, but what, what you and also Harriet are suggesting seems... Sorry, I, um, I missed that bit. Sorry, I was going to say, what, what both you and Harriet are suggesting all seems very reasonable in terms of, of, of ways of fixing this. I wonder why you think it's eluded um, politicians and policymakers for so long, if it seems so obvious. I think this is, one, I th I think this is absolutely fascinating because I, the uh, conservative politicians, for example, when we published our paper, Social Care in the 21st Century at Policy Exchange, uh, Jacob Rees-Mogg, um, who I don't think anyone would describe as a crypto-collectivist or, <laughs> or socialist, yeah. recognised that it really has got to be um, uh, you know, collective provision, uh, analogous to the National Health Service, uh, because the, his constituents, who he sees in, prom, in, in trouble, I think the difficulty has been there are two um, political angles that come at this. There's some on the left who say, do you know what, you've got to be very careful, some slightly better-off households uh, may actually be given free care when instead we should actually be uh, extracting all the cost out of them uh, because they're better off than another household. So there's the distributional uh, question yeah. that affects the left and certain kinds of administrators within uh, Whitehall, a sort of Fabian socialist uh, piece of uh, uh, reflex. And the other is um, uh, a kind of uh, right-wing idle dog who's terrified that the state would ever spend uh, any money. And I think that it's that those two things that have conflicted. But You've asked before, you know, what ideas are around. I mean, in fairness, the Sutherland Royal Commission laid out a pretty good analysis and direction of travel way back in, I think, 1999. Um, and there are lots of think tanks, um, such as the two you've got on here now, who've got plenty of I yeah. think, practical ideas to do it. The question is cost. Yeah. Um, we think a policy exchange to do the... Uh, principal change will be a little bit more expensive at about 11 billion pounds and we also recognize more money's got to go into it but do bear in mind you can pile as much money as you want into the nhs but you will not get results for that spending unless you fix the plain deficiencies in the structure of social care and its funding
That's all we've got time for on the Red Box podcast. Remember, you can like and subscribe the podcast wherever you found us. And you can, of course, listen on the Times Radio app. You can listen to Times Radio Live. You can listen to the actual show. You can listen to Weekend Breakfast on Times Radio, which I host Friday, Saturday and Sunday. And remember, if you want to read the Red Box email every day, you have to be a Times subscriber. If you're not one already, go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash subscribe. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk.